right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Solly here. This is a this is a doozy of an episode, if I may say. Went up to Keith Mitchell's house up in Sea Island uh, today and did not expect to go an hour and forty minutes uh, with him. But man, it covered a lot of topics. We go cover flying private. You know how you budget that. You know tour life. How to get from the Latino America to Web.com. Some heartbreak along the way. What it takes to maintain at the top. Just Basically, I feel like I can ask this dude anything. We talk a little distance stuff at the end, which I found his insight to be particularly fascinating. I think you're going to really enjoy this one. It might take you a couple couple commutes to get through it, but there's a reason why we went for so long, and it was because the content I thought was very good. Of course, if you're listening to this, that means this week's episode of Torah Sauce has already aired. No Laying Up is, of course, brought to you by Precision Pro Golf. As you would have seen on this season of Torah Sauce, everyone here at No Laying Up trusts Precision Pro Golf's rangefinders to help us swing with confidence and hit more greens. I'm not going to spoil anything from the episode if you haven't watched it yet, but you're going to want to see uh, these are the semifinal matches at Sylvie's Valley Ranch. Myself taking on DJ Pie, Big Randy taking on Neil on one of the widest, fastest, firmest, most ridiculous golf courses I've ever played, uh, the Hankins routing at Sylvie's Valley Ranch. Please, please watch this episode. Uh, it is one of the highlights of the season. During the holidays, you can get the NX9 Slope Rangefinder, the same one we all use, for $40 off. So whether you're shopping for yourself or that golfer you love this holiday season, a Precision Pro Rangefinder is the perfect gift. The NX9 is fast, accurate, and has the very useful magnetic cart mount, so it's easy to reach before every shot. It's the only rangefinder that offers free lifetime battery replacement services. So this offer is only available while supplies last. Go to PrecisionProGolf.com, add our favorite rangefinder to your bag for $40 off. Swing with confidence, hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. Let's get to Keith Mitchell. So explain Sea Island to me. It I've been up here several times. I like it. Golf is great. A lot of tour pros. It is what? How many? How many tour pros live here, and why do tour pros want to live in Sea Island? On the PGA Tour, it's a dozen at least. You know, it goes back and forth between ten to fourteen, depending on the year. I just have guys that have their card, and that doesn't count guys on the Corn Ferry Tour or the Mini Tours or Latin Tour Canada. It's really amazing how many guys live in such a small town. It's not Scottsdale. Where you know it's a actually you know a subsidiary of Phoenix, it's huge, right? And Jupiter's you got West Palm, you got Miami, just South Fort Lauderdale, everything, right? And it's it's really cool because the center of all of our friends down here are usually on our same schedule, and that's what makes Sea Island awesome. Is that when it's a random Tuesday in June, you know we you know it's not like all my buddies are at work and they come home at from nine to five, and I'm by myself with a golf course. And you don't find that really in Scottsdale, Jupiter, but any other town, you know, even Jacksonville, but any other town where there's not that many golfers, it's really hard as a professional to find the balance of like work because you'd be by yourself, practicing by yourself, this and that. And then everybody has completely different schedules at night. Like you might be working out or going to bed early because you got an early workout the next morning and vice versa. So that's, that's like the very general sense of why Sea Island's cool. What I liked about it and why I came here was because a lot of guys that I played with from University of Georgia were already here. 
And so it was a very easy transition. And who are those guys? So Harris English, um, Hudson Swafford, uh, Brian Harmon lives down here. Um, before that, Chris Kirk lived here. Russell Henley lived here. Both of those guys have moved on. Um, TJ Mitchell was on the team with me, who's on the Corn Ferry Tour. Joey Garber was on the team with me. He's gone back and forth between the PGA Tour and the Corn Ferry Tour. So uh, Mookie DeMoss, actually, who's on the Latin American Tour, was my roommate at Georgia. And all of us, it was a very easy transition to move down here because because of how amazing the practice facilities are, there is a couple management groups, maybe three management groups that have offices down here for all these guys. And the weather might not be perfect in the winter, but it's it's very good year round. Every place, you know, Scottsdale's perfect in the winter, but it's super hot in the summer. Jupiter's perfect in the winter, but it's thunderstorms a lot in the summer. So like I feel like in Sea Island we have a very good kind of like jack of all traits in terms of the weather traveling in and out it's easy it's the biggest joke i've ever heard really so are you out of the local airport right here right as you come into sea island or how often or (laughs) how does it work like that that's the part that blows my mind because the people that i know in my tax bracket are flying in out of jacks a lot which is not that close to here well my point to that is is if you're moving down here to play professional golf then that is your goal is to be able to fly in and out of the local airport here. That's three <laughs> minutes from my front door. And not all professional golfers living here are flying in and out of that airport. Correct. Okay. So when I played on the Latin tour living here, which is the hardest tour in the world to travel on, okay, you drive 15 to 20 minutes to Brunswick Airport. You get there 30 minutes before your flight because there's only one gate and there's only one flight and it's going to Atlanta. It's a 40-minute flight to Atlanta. So by the time I leave my house and I'm sitting in the Atlanta airport in the terminal in an hour and 45 minutes, and then I can get anywhere in the world. I was talking to Jason Bone, who lives in like Marietta or Alpharetta or something in Atlanta, and he talks about how easy it is to travel out of there. We leave our houses at the exact same time to get on the same flight from Atlanta to wherever we're going. So it's not perfect, but if there's a direct flight from anywhere from Jacksonville, we go straight to Jacksonville. It's 50 minutes from my house, and I'm there. Guys in Nocatee, wherever they yeah. live over there, it's 30 minutes to the airport. Oh, more I'm, than that. Yeah, so I'm almost the same for them. So it, it's – and if you're on the mini tours and, you, you know, you're playing the Florida swing or the Florida mini tours or the G-Pro up in North Carolina, it's a four-and-a-half-hour drive to North Carolina, and it's a four-hour drive to West Palm Beach. You're selling me. You're selling me. Because, I mean, a lot of people live in Orlando for the airport, like being one flight away. I, I would assume that's why a lot of pros live there. I hope that's not their only reason of living in a place. Not only, but some of the really global yeah. players. Henrik Stenson, Ian Poulter, yeah. those dudes that, you know, it's a lot of international players set up in Orlando. Right. If you're playing the European Tour and the PGA Tour, yeah, Seattle would be very difficult to travel back exactly. and forth. Yeah. I completely understand that. But I'm not. That's not my argument. So how often are you, or what's the situation where you're getting to fly out of this the St. Simons Airport? So (laughs) it definitely helped after I won. I would say that I was I was so far from that. But now with NetJets and so many guys being part of NetJets on the tour, and I know Wheels Up has something, but NetJets has been amazing, and most everybody on St. Simons or Sea Island has net jets. So imagine four of us coming back from the John Deere where there's no flights back into Brunswick 
or you might have to land in Jacksonville at midnight and then drive an hour. Not to sound whatever, but we're flying first class mostly on tour because, you know, it's business and, you know, it helps our, our bodies when you got more room and you're not cramped. And, oh, say no more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it is it what it is. It makes a difference. Yeah. That's what I'm getting at is I'm, I'm getting at, like, the cost benefit of right. all of this, and it's there. It, it can be it, there. It can be there. <laughs> I don't want to say it's there. That sounds dumb. But when you have four guys that you could leave, you know, Moline, Iowa, land at three minutes from your house in an hour and a half, and you split that flight four ways. What's the cost? It's it's so like 1.5 hours. Let's go. Everybody's paying a fourth of an hour, you know, a third of an hour or whatever you want to be, you know, half an hour. And when you divvy up a half hour, it might be double the price per person of a first class ticket. Wow. That's so, an incredible deal. Right. So but the problem is you have to have four guys go in the same place at the same time. Now, that's more difficult. Some guys might have kids. Some guys might have their wife. You know, you can't do that's a perfect scenario, right? If there's only two guys and, you know, we got a bunch of bags that week, you know, it won't fit on the plane, then you're no, then you're spending four times of commercial. You know, then it starts getting dicey. If you're flying by yourself in your own plane, then it doesn't matter. Like you have enough money that doesn't matter. We're not there yet. <laughs> right. It, but it, it becomes a certain, you know, Billy Horschel explained this one time of like the value of, and I thought of it differently forever after that was like, like how could you pay 15,000, whatever it could turn out to be $15,000 for a flight when he, and the way he explained it was like, well, if that saved me one shot in the next week, the convenience of getting to bed on time, starting my week right, getting to my personal training appointment in the morning, blah, blah, and if it saved me one shot by the end of the week, and that's the difference between ninth and eighth, that might be more than $15,000. Or whatever that number is, it's like it, it makes sense. It doesn't make sense to do every week, I don't think, but there's certain scenarios, and there's value in, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, I wouldn't say you yet have all the money in the world that you don't think about money, right? So, But the guys that have all the money in the world – value their time right it's there's no reason not to if you're tiger or phil or rory or dustin exactly it's, it's just it's it's like it would be the same value in terms of my bank account as theirs as me flying commercial like it's the same your percentage right. of your worth <laughs> so why not right and but at the same time for me if i'm going between you know san diego and phoenix and there's a southwest flight or a delta flight every hour on the hour and it's direct from the two i'm saving 30 minutes on each side from checking in and baggage claim. And I'm paying, you know, on that flight, who knows, maybe 10 times more, you know, it's not worth it, you know, but hopefully you get to the point where you can do that. But even then it like, I'm afraid, like (laughs) someone told me, I'm not going to say their name, but it is never get comfortable doing something that you can't do forever. Okay. I like that. That makes sense. So, like, if I start flying, if I have a great year, like 2019 had a great year, and I could have flown to every tournament, and it wouldn't have made a difference, right? Well, if I have a bad year in 2021 and 2022, and I'm flying the same amount, and then all of a sudden, I'm like, hold on, I got to back this down. Like, I haven't been playing it, you know, whatever. You never want to be able to do something that you can't do forever, because if you get used to it, it doesn't become a luxury anymore, right? It becomes becomes habitual and if flying private is a habit you damn sure better be able to do it every day <laughs> play better that, that's right. an example no, of play better. it is play better but even then like it, it's just that's what a lot of other guys tell me like the guys especially that live around the atlanta area they're like yeah i mean looking back and you spend a couple million dollars and flying private and you're like you can't you don't have anything to show for it i mean you do 
but you don't, right? And he's like, I mean, I could have gotten a first class ticket out of Atlanta and, you know, saved this and that here and there, direct flight. It's something that's it's almost impossible to put a finger on. You can justify both ways. It's just it's a feel thing, I guess. Right, and I think I think a, a, a probably not a lot of listeners to this show, but a lot a lot of golf fans assume everyone's flying private everywhere, which is most definitely not the case. I remember we had a player stay at our house uh, like eight years ago at the memorial, and I picked him up from the airport, and he was hand lugging his you know suitcase for three weeks and his golf travel bag with a million pairs of shoes racking up the overage like all. And I just didn't picture that, and and then the reality kind of set in of like you guys are on your own for so much stuff. Like you don't have someone there assisting you with all the little inconveniences of life. And there's a lot of stress that comes with travel, especially when you do it every single week. So I think understanding travel and golf is, is an interesting thing. It's not like the tour doesn't charter, uh, you know, in normal circumstances, isn't chartering planes between stops. You don't have a team that you're traveling with in terms of like basketball or baseball or something like that. And it's something that like it, it wears on you over the course of an entire season. When you're traveling for 30 weeks a year, it definitely does. Now, I think it's fun to think that everybody has a G5 like Tiger. Like, I mean, yeah, I mean, when I was in high school, college, whatever, I was like, man, how cool would it be to fly on, play on tour and fly around in a Gulf Stream? I mean, that'd be sweet, right? But at the same time, it's 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 definitely there. People definitely do do it, but it's not. It's you're like you said. It's not everywhere. And when it's convenient, and when you know you've been successful enough that you know it, you don't feel like you're spending an arm and a leg to do it, then then we do it. And that's so. Back to the original question of do I fly in out there? <laughs> I would say a fourth a fourth of the time, and it's usually flying home when it saves me. A legitimately 24 hours where I could not fly back till Monday. Right. And I can be home at six on Sunday and then go out to wherever to eat or come home. Then, yeah, I'll do it. But when we're flying from home to somewhere, when you have no time constraints and this and that, it's very, it's very rare. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, it, that helps me understand Sea Island a lot, honestly. It took 12 minutes to get it all out. Yeah, it's the easiest sense. place in the world to travel out of <laughs> if you have won 10 times on tour. <laughs> So you were you were saying when we played the pro a couple weeks ago that like, yeah, Davis and some of the dudes here they're flying out of this one very local, the local one very frequently, and it's quite legitimately five minutes from their door to being wheels up. We so Davis and I are actually going on a fishing trip, and actually we're leaving on Friday, so we're leaving in three days, and our flight takes off at ten thirty, and I will leave my house at ten twenty, and I will be early. <laughs> That's awesome. And and right now flying internationally or flying wherever, it's 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 so like cancellations, this and that, layovers, like you know, you sometimes you don't want to risk that. And and not that we want to risk it there. We're just that's a perfect example. On Friday, you can I'll time it and I will tell you <laughs> when I walked out of my door and when I got on the plane and I'll tell you exactly how long. Longer than we've gone on this topic. Yes. <laughs> Way. Yeah. What do you, where do you play when you, when you're playing here? Like, is it, I guess this is what I picture to be the dream place to get really good games. Just, you know, the crew that you guys have here, uh, the amount, the options you have to play here. What's, what's the, what's that landscape look like? Well, we have, we have Frederica, which has, which is a great practice facility, but very wide open. You know, it doesn't really test your ball striking that much, but you know, fun place to go out and mess around ocean forest, which is the opposite. Um, you know, a, a practice facility that is, you know, 
doable. Like it's you can hit balls and chip and putt. It's it's fine. It's nothing spectacular, but it's you know absolutely complimentary. And the golf course is absolutely a major championship golf course. It is so hard. It's long. It's tight. It's tough around the greens. You know, it's demanding on every part of your game. And then you have um, just a little local place, uh, Sea Palms has a Rob Collins design who, you know, as we all know on here is Sweetens Cove, designed a short game area that is not really short game because it's 200-something yards long and about 60 or 70 yards wide. And it is – I've taken tour pros down here, and they'll say it is top five in the world short game areas. It is – and this is compared to the other places we have down here. And then you have Sea Island, who has potentially one of the best uh, – they call it the Golf Performance Center – uh, which is, you know, like eight hitting bays, a full club fitting room, club repair room, you know, a gym, a putting studio, everything you could ever imagine on almost a 360-degree range so you can hit any wind. And then they have a separate area that just has tour pros allowed to hit on the tee back there with three golf courses, two of which we play in a tour event, and the other one we play when the other ones are busy. So, I mean, to me, I sit back and it's like, if you can't get better here, <laughs> it's your own fault. Yeah. No, you've you've made the sale. I'm kind of like, All right, what are real estate prices like up here? <laughs> no, that is a that's a very very compelling case, and I kind of wanted to you know talk to you about, I guess kind of for the listeners that aren't familiar with what your path to being on the PGA Tour has been. You know, you were at the University of Georgia. You played Latino America. You played Web.com. Can you kind of take us through that timeline, and then I want to talk about how how that changes you know life and your career. Well, I left. University of Georgia as knowing I wanted to turn pro. I had I was an All-American one year, but it was kind of like that backdoor All-American where you finish top 15 in the in NCAAs and you're like, oh, wait, oh, by the way, well, you're an honorable mention All-American. So it had nothing to do with my year-long play. So I was like kind of a backdoor All-American my sophomore year, and I wasn't anything my freshman, junior, senior year. So, you know, I was like, I'm going to turn pro. I've always thought about turning pro. I wanted to be a professional golfer. And a lot of people told me I've always had talent. So I was like, I'll give it a shot. I make it through pre-Q my first year and then miss it first stage. So I'm like, I mean, yeah, I got a lot to lean on right now, right? First, take us to first stage. I mean, is that like devastating? Is that you would expect to make it through that or is I, that I mean, over? I, I did expect to make it through it, yes. What do you have to shoot to make through? I can't remember what it was there, but I, I mean, you know, I, I might have missed it by four, maybe three or four. But like when you're on the back nine, and you're only going to miss by three or four. It feels like you're right there, right? It's not like oh, you missed by four or five. It's like well, if you have nine holes left and you're only four back, I mean, you're thinking you can still make it, right? And what I'm kind of getting at here is we're going to eventually weed through in enormous volume of professional golfers to get to the PGA Tour, and like that story is much as I emphasize that, like. You can't tell that story too many times of how many people you got to be better than to be a constant player on the PGA Tour. And the more time I spend in this job, the people that do it for long periods of time, I'm more and more amazed at. So that's kind of what I'm getting out of like, do you show up at first stage, look around and be like, this is a lot of people that are like me, or do you feel like you're much better than most of the players there? I mean, it's both. If you don't feel like you're better than the other guys, then Why you're not going to win. Yeah. It's just, but anyway. You know, I was more of a, the experience side. Like, you know, I'd seen guys there that had beaten me in college or guys that had I'd beat me in college when I was a freshman or sophomore. So I didn't, have, I didn't have anything to lean on other than my college golf. And I had a very, very uh, mediocre college career compared to most of the guys on the PGA Tour. But I went down to Argentina 
I never forget. I flew to Argentina for Q school. Didn't speak any Spanish. Went with a buddy of mine. And it was, I believe, Adam Shank was at that same qualifier. So Adam Shank and I, and, you know, now now here we are, right? I mean, it's it's funny if you would have taken us having a beer after the Latino Q school in Hurlingham, Argentina, if if you would have said like, hey, oh, Harry Higgs, Harry Higgs. Was just, lecture, that yeah. was the name I had in my mind. And so, so all these guys, you're down here, you're like, you know, at the time when I had gotten my Latin American tour card, it felt like I'd got my tour card because I felt like I had accomplished something. And that was all you need. When you feel like you accomplished something, it doesn't matter at what level. It feels good, and you want more of it, and you want more of it. So once I got that card, I played okay the first part of Latin America. Then I started getting some steam. Then I started playing well. Then I got you know in the top whatever forty, and I kept my card for the next year. And I was like, I didn't care. Like I kept my card on the Latino America tour, and that was the next biggest accomplishment I've ever had. And once I kind of that happened, I played really good, and I lost in a playoff in Brazil, and finished second. And that was when I knew I could play. I was like, when I started, you know, six, seven months ago, I was just happy to be on this tour. And now I'm disappointed that I didn't win. And so that's when I started kind of believing that this, I I might be able to do this. This is pretty cool. So I go to Uruguay, which is Uruguay for people from Tennessee and Georgia, right? (laughs) But I learned that down there. Uruguay? Yeah, Uruguay. (laughs) So... I'm down there and I'm in 11th place and Nate Lashley is in 10th. Top 10 guys get exempt into final stage. I'm already exempt into second stage because t- uh, 11 to 20th gets into second stage. Nate Lashley and I both miss a cut. So therefore, he goes to the final stage and I go second stage. I then fly from Uruguay 24 hours to get home. We didn't have... You know, I was not think I had made I didn't made enough to fly one time private down there. So <laughs> back to that previous story. Twenty four hours to get home. I have like four days or five days to prepare for second stage. And I make it through second stage on the number. And so I get in final stage. And that was when I was like, Wow, maybe I you know, maybe I can play on the on the, at that time the web.com, the corn fairy tour. And then I get to final stage and it's, believe it or not, it's at PGA national where, you know, the story will evolve. No spoilers, no spoilers. (laughs) And I, I play terrible. I finished like 85th and I won't get any starts anywhere. Um, I just, my number's not good enough. I have to re I have to Monday qualify or reshuffle in. And I had met some guys down in Latin America. The first event was in Panama. Chico Duran. If you're on there, Chico, you know, you're my boy. But he, him and his family run the Panama event, and he gave me a sponsor exemption. A lot of guys wrote me letters. I, I owe a lot of people thank yous for, you know, sticking their neck out for me. And the best part about this story is I'm staying with a buddy of mine who's caddying for Jonathan Bird. I set my alarm, go to bed for the first night. I'm early tea time. And I wake up to him saying, yo, Keith wake up and I'm like what do you what and he's like wake up it's seven o'clock and I look I look over and I grab my phone my alarm's going off but the volume's all the way on low mm. my tea time is at 8 10 those of you who have played in Panama you know that it's a shuttle 
that leaves every 30 minutes and it's a 45 minute shuttle ride to the golf course and it's 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 like 701 702 so i don't shower i get up i put my clothes on go downstairs have to call a taxi in panama to drive me 45 minutes to get to the golf tournament and i was sitting there i don't really speak any spanish i'm trying to get some out and she's trying to talk back and then she looks at me and she goes do you speak english <laughs> and i almost jumped out of the car i was so happy and i'm like yes yes i'm going to the golf course i need to go here i go just please go as fast as you can i'll give you whatever you got just go and she's like okay perfect drive straight there lets me out i walk straight into the I hadn't eaten breakfast, hadn't eaten anything, and it's a thousand degrees in Panama. So I go eat breakfast, have um, have some water. I hit balls for five minutes. Go to the first tee. I shoot sixty-eight. I'm tee fourth. Of course, that was the only, that was the only way that story was, was the only. End. <laughs> it was the only way. I swear, it was the only way that you could have taken some nerves off of golf and done it. It was just the weirdest day. Like if my buddy, if I had not been staying with him and he had not been sleeping right there and he had not woken up, just just woke, he didn't have his alarm set, then. I would literally might not be anywhere. Like I would have, that would have been my one chance That's to reach up. Effect, yeah, yeah, exactly. So anyway, I shoot 78 the next day. I make, I had to like two putt the last hole from like 40 feet to make the color number after being T4. Then I shoot 68, 69 or 70, whatever, and finish 14th. It's like, I mean, talk about emotions in one week, almost missed your tee time T4, almost missing a cut. And then being back in the top 25 to go the next week. So now I fly to Columbia um, I finished like 30th. I had to bury the last hole to get top 25 again. I didn't. And then just kind of keep going, right? I played good enough on the on the web tour that year to keep my card. Um, played decent in the playoffs, but not good enough. So the next year then, I was like, okay, now I can try to get my tour card. Like I've performed on the on the on my first year out here. Now the next year is let's see if we can move forward. And I don't know if you want to tee this up or you want to do anything funny, but you know where that, you know, I know where it's going. <laughs> yeah, you, you could take us there. <laughs> I have a great year, and I kind of stumble toward the end of the season. Not stumble, just you know, I'm not exactly where I need to be. And so I'm coming down. I play great the first couple rounds of Portland. It's the last event of the year, and I'm going the last day in the last group. And I know I have to finish, you know, top five or something to get my tour card play good I'm playing good I'm playing good to get really nervous on number 12 and I miss like a three foot putt you can find it somewhere I mean it was short and I whiffed it and I was like I looked at Pete my caddy he's still caddying for me caddying for me this whole time and I said all right well we know what happens when you're afraid so let's not be afraid the last couple holes birdie 14 birdie 15 missed probably like an eight footer on 16 and then on 17 I hit the best putt I've ever hit and it rolls right up to the front and stays right on the lip and so now I'm no I know I'm up there, but I don't know exactly where I am. And one of my best friends in the entire world, who actually I played on the high, on my high school golf team, Steven Yeager, was standing on the green, and he was so nervous, he said he had a beer a hole on the back nine. So you can imagine what kind of state he's in right now because he's already got his tour card. And I'm kind of out of it. And I ask him, I say, what do I need to make? Big bird or little bird? I'm not in any sort of mind to ask a legitimate question. I'm just trying to just whatever. And he is worse than me. He's more <laughs> nervous than me and potentially drunk, right? And he says, big bird, baby. Come on, big bird. 
So for the golf lingo guys, big bird's an eagle and just a bird is a birdie, right? So I'm like, okay, I got to make eagle to get my card. I'm the only person on the face of the earth that thinks I need to make eagle. Oh, my God. The announcers know. The cameramen know. My caddy knows. Everyone knows. But me, because of a simple miscommunication with my best friend who wanted me to get it just as bad as I did. You taught, you got advice from the guy, the only guy that was eight beers deep. Yeah, is who you, did, well, I didn't know that <laughs> at the time. So I get up there. I hit the best drive ever on 18. Try to just flags on the very left edge of the green. It falls off. you got to miss it right. You can get easy up and down if you don't. Not easy, but it's an up and down, right? You miss it left, you're toast. I take it right at the flag, lands right on the green and rolls all the way down the slope. I try to hit this hard chip, knock it in, goes like 30 feet by. People still think I got this putt to go on tour, and I've I've already I'm already I've already You've already missed you missed I, I'm the done. Tour. I've missed yeah. the tour. Like I'm trying to hold back tears on the green, <laughs> and everybody on this is sitting on the other seat, like, oh my god, this is going to make the tour. Card. And I'm sitting here like, oh my god, I can't believe I didn't make it to the tour. So anyway, I miss putt. Walk in, I'm walking down the thing, and I sit down, and Rick Wilde is in there. He's a scoring guy. He's on the tour now. He's just a great friend, and he. He looks at me, and I was like, did I need to make Eagle? And he kind of looked at me, like, and his face turned white. I'm like, did I need to make Eagle, Rick? And he's like, no, you just needed to make Birdie. And that was when my face turned white, right? I thought I was already, you know, crushed. Yeah. I was extra crushed. And then Rico, the rules official, walks in. I've ne- this guy's a hard, he's, you know, he's a hard ass guy. Like he's always tough. And he walks in there, takes that off and gives me a hug. And I think he's going to cry. And I'm like, what is going on right now? Then Royce, the media guy goes, Hey man, we got to do your interview. You don't, you can say no, you don't have to do anything if you don't have to. Like, I'm just, I was like, Nope, I'm going to get out in front of this right now because if I hold this in, I'm toast. So I went and did the interview Burkowski. It was whatever. Go to Cleveland the next week. So I end up finishing 26, obviously. Don't get my tour card. And go to Cleveland the next – or uh, Columbus the next week. And it's like I'm possessed with this person that is so determined to get his tour card that nothing is going to stop me. And it was the best week of golf I've ever played. And you won. No. <laughs> <laughs> I finished sixth. <laughs> and that was pretty good. <laughs> but that was good enough to get my card. As soon as you finished yeah. sixth, you yeah. knew you were Everybody good. Yeah, everybody was like, we were good. Yeah. You, you got your card. Congrats. And I was like – you know, long story short, it didn't end up being enough because of all the withdrawals and the hurricane that came through and this oh, and that. That's right. But I finished six in Cleveland too, so I was just I just kept rolling. But at the time, you know, you you in getting, history, yeah. I was in. So that was that, and it's like this chain of events. I've had the you know the waking up thing, all I've the had way back the, to the Portland thing where you get bad information. You know, it's like golf already has enough variables that when you throw in the stuff off the course i mean it's like what are we what are we doing like i've been i've talked to michael phelps a little bit about swimming and it's like the same the same pool same amount of race same stroke same everything and he can like calculate it down to everything he needs to do i was like dude that's impossible in my sport it's impossible it's so hard and finding a way to not let any of that stuff bother you and only make you better is like is a mind game that you know maybe gandhi could figure out i don't know tiger did for a little bit but that's it golly man that was a that was a wild ride i know like i was my lazy interpretations like yeah there's a lot of pro golfers out there that you gotta be better that you know better than and that kind of illustrates it better than and than anything it's like do you i guess do you still feel and we're going to kind of build up to the pga tour do you still feel like a thin line between like where you are and like the petite uh, pga tour latino america 
No. Not even close. You've the, gotten that much better, or you just are... I The level of of other golfers. Like, I'm comparing myself to only Latino guys when I'm on the Latino Tour. I'm comparing myself only to the Corn Ferry guys when I'm on the Corn Ferry Tour. Now I'm comparing myself only to the PGA Tour guys. And then after you win, and you're in the WGCs and in the majors, you're comparing yourself only to the guys in those tours. That is the difference. And it's not that there's a thin line. There's a thin line between every single step. Okay, there's a thin line between keeping your card and losing your card in the Latin Tour. Then there's a thin line between getting through the Latin Tour. Then there's a thin line of getting on the web and the thin line. There's like 30 thin lines from college to winning on the PGA Tour, right? So, yeah, it's very easy to say there's a thin line. But Dustin Johnson's thin line is being first in the world and 10th in the world. He's never going to go back down the you know like oh you know what's the difference between you and when you were on it's just a different level of person talent golf whatever you want to say so for me when I made it all the way up and I you know I was starting to play in the WGCs and played in all four majors my second year on tour you know all this stuff your expectations just go through the roof right you're comparing yourself to the guys that were in the field at the Honda and you won the Honda. We well, yeah, beat Ricky and Brooks, but the only reason Ricky and Brooks were there was because they were like one in five in the world. Right? Well, now I'm playing against one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and trying to beat those guys constantly. You might be able to do it once here and there, but to be able to do it over and over and over and over and over again and stay top ten, top twenty five in the world, it's completely a different ballgame. So yes, the line's thin between top twenty five and top fifty, fifty and hundred, all the way back down until you go to the Latin tour. But staying that consistency between those two is the art of golf. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it it seems to be. And I remember Kepka saying this when he was either a rookie or just coming over from the European Tour or whatever. When he he's saying, you know, my eyes used to be around the cut line and I would be at the cut line. You know, my eyes then kind of changed to like top twenty five and I'd be around top twenty five. And then it was like, hey, if I'm finishing top ten, it's a good week and I'd be around top ten until you get to the point where. You are picturing yourself winning. I think that's kind of what you're saying on a different a different scale. He's just talking about PJ Tour finishes, but like, hey, no, no, I not only am I better than all of these people. Like, I need I need to go beat these guys. That is my goal. That is the you know the carrot at the end of this rope. It's it's stepping stones. It's when I got my Latin America Tour card, it was my first step up, and so that was like, wow, I want to make another step. You know. Keeping my car on Latin tour is the next step, right? Then getting on the web tour is the next step. You can't sit there on the Latin tour in Argentina and think the next step is the PGA tour. Like, right. You, see, yeah. you have to one shot at a time mentality. It is, but it's so hard to do in our game. Like you just have to be the best version of yourself at any given time and know that like what you're trying to do is right in that moment is keep going and keep going and keep going. And then eventually if you went on tour, great. Right. But it's, you. it's easy to say that. But it's impossible to do. And things just kind of, you know, they fall your way here and there. You take your confidence when you can get it. You try to throw the negative out when you get it. You know, and that's the hard part about it where the line is so thin when you're on it, right? The line that I'm on, you know, trying to win the Honda is so thin between winning and finishing second, right? Well, that's a completely different line than the line I was three years ago. Yeah. Gosh, it's... I feel like I'm more confused the more you, like, no, no, like you're explaining it very, very well. But I'm also like, I feel like every time I get closer to drilling down, you know, why certain guys are on tour for long periods of time, I get further away from it. Like, I, I you know, 
Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, because you're playing people. You're not playing the game. Like you can't like in basketball or football, the fastest guy and the guy that has the best hands is going to be the best period. Well, this has no, I mean, in golf, it's like, oh, well, the guy hits it far. This is going to be good. Well, no. The guy that puts the best is going to be good. No. I mean, it's just, there's, like we said, there's so many variables in our sport that it's, it takes, it's like an entire puzzle that you all have to just fit in perfectly and just happens to work. And some guys, I mean, I will, I could name you 10 guys that are way better at golf than me. Hands down. I will say it to my grave that are on tour. Why? It's not because I worked harder than them. That's BS. They work just as hard as me. Is is it, it's your belief and it's the you know the cards fall your way. It's seizing the simple. opportunity. Yeah, yeah, exactly what it is. Like if I you take advantage of your opportunities and that's it. They had opportunities, I had opportunities. I happened to come through in mine and they didn't. Has nothing to do with being able to play in pressure. Has nothing to do with I had more or less. It just it is what it is. Like John Peterson is still the best golfer I've ever played with. I don't care what anybody <laughs> says on this. Like I've played with him before. He is unbelievable, right? And there's plenty of guys that I played with in college. Bobby Wyatt, Corey Witsit, all these guys. They were number one in the world amateurs. I never beat them ever, even in the little professional tournaments we played in. And does that does golf being on the PGA Tour mean everything? Well, no. It's just your job. They they could do amazing things and other things, or they could still come on the PGA Tour. Like it doesn't matter. It's just the way it goes is there something too though that you know kind of like a college let's just take a college basketball prospect right that has you know big big athletic ability big reach maybe isn't completely honed in but when they come to the nba with the right training they have the tools to become to perform at a higher level than they did even in college do you see that with yourself at all like you are one of the best drivers in the game right you're i think your game projects out very well for the PGA Tour. Even if you hadn't had incredible success leading up to it, like you have a skill that translates very well to the PGA Tour and you've been able to, you know, it's it's a different like if Corey Witsit and you know Bobby White are beating you in college, that like there's college basketball players that are way better, you know, than, you know, player X or whatever, but when they get to the NBA, player X is way better. Do you see that anywhere in a comparison in golf and how you've been able to succeed on the PGA Tour? In terms of me and myself, yes. Like, there's a lot of people in my camp that have been, that have believed in me since before day one. Like, like guys like Peter Persons who played at Georgia and helped me with my short game. My assistant coach Jim Douglas, my swing coach Chan Reeves, who I've worked with since high school. You know, these guys, they've been, they played professionally, and they've taught some of the best players in the world at Georgia. So Jim Douglas saw, you know, Bubba and Kisner. You know, all these guys go through Kirk, everybody, you know, Peter played on tour, actually won on tour and Chan played at tech and, and played professionally. So they, they could see that, right. They could see the things I couldn't see as a naive college guy. And so they were the ones that believed in that. Right. So once I left Georgia and the college atmosphere, which I did really, I was really good at college. I wasn't necessarily really good at golf, but I was really good at college. There's a lot of growing that happens. Yeah, of course. And I think it happens to a lot. A lot of guys are just. Like, I don't know if you've heard of the name Davis Thompson, but you will eventually. Like, he is a professional golfer in college. Like, period. If he can stay on the track he's going to be, he's going to do that. Me, I had the talent, but I wasn't performing. Now, the difference, in my opinion, is being able to harness that talent in golf is a lot harder than any other sport because of all the intangibles and all the variables and all this and that, where – you could look at a guy and says, this guy's got a lot of game, right? Anybody can look at somebody and say they have talent. Like Brooks Kepka had 
talent, and he played on the Challenge Tour and this and that. I mean, Brooks Kepka was good. He was really good at, at Florida State, but he wasn't the next thing, right? He wasn't the next thing on the Challenge Tour. He's just really good. Then he got better and better and better and better, right? Well, everybody knew that he had talent. They just Nobody knows how to develop it. They might, but it takes a team, it takes a calculated approach, and it takes a player believing in that approach for him to do that. So to answer your question in a very long, complicated way, yes, you can tell when somebody has talent. But that does not mean they're going to play on tour because there's so many things that it goes into, the lifestyle, the travel, you know, getting your head kicked in so many times, missing the cut in Wichita, Kansas, or or in Buenos Aires, right? Like those are things that you can't predict, like in the NBA, you, you have your circumstances. Here's your team. Here's your coaches. The gym's the same. Everything's the same. You know, whatever. Yeah, guys go over to Europe and they play. That's like me going to Latin tour. Those those are the guys that are. It's hard for them to make. The Spees, the Justin Thomases, those guys were on a fast track to the tour. You knew they were good, but they were good at every level. Me and some other guys on tour, we might have had the talent, but it, they just blossomed later. Hmm. Well, and I, and I think it, an underrated part of professional golf is. You touched on it there, like getting your teeth kicked in in Wichita is like the volume of shots you got to put up before like you succeed, right? Nobody just goes right out and makes every cut on the Corn Ferry Tour. Like you got to go. Every week is not like life or death, right? It is about throwing thirty starts out there and succeeding in twelve of them, even though it feels like everyone's life or death, right? <laughs> so like, and this is a a bad you know correlation or whatever, but I, I it bothers me when people you know, get on, let's say like, like a Tony Romo or a Steph Curry or whatever that are playing in a pro event and like taking the round of golf they just played as like a representation of their ability. Right. And it's like, no, like it would take 20 starts on a tour before you really understood like the potential of Steph Curry's game. Right. Or someone like Romo. And it's like that in, in pro golf as well. Like if it's not a maker, you missed what three or four cuts before you won in the Honda or something like that. Like it's not a week to week. You have to be great every week. It's like, how good can you be out of this volume of opportunities? I mean, that's perfectly said. And then the other, the, you know, a lot of my, my, probably my least favorite thing that anyone that has anything to do with professional golf says is it only takes one week. <laughs> like all it takes is one good week. Like, Oh Yeah. Keith had one good week at the Honda, and he's playing in all the majors and WGCs and whatever, right? Do you know how many freaking weeks it took to have one good week? It took like five years of good weeks to build the confidence to do that. Yes, on paper, on results, oh, man, all it takes is one good week. Like, you're not wrong in the surface level, result-oriented world that we live in, right? Everybody can log on to and see what I shot the last week, right? Well, what if something I clicked that week on the back nine when I missed the cut and it felt good and I was going and I had a great off week practicing in it and I went and won? Is it one good week? No, it had everything to do with before that. Take this, you know, for a very surface level comment, but to me, it's it seems almost I don't know how you define harder in this scenario. It's harder to get to where you are than it is to succeed where you currently are. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, yes. I don't know how to phrase that. No, I know what you're saying. It's very hard to get where we are, but it's, I mean, I honestly, personally, you know, 2020 after the pandemic, we went back, I didn't play very well. Right. I just didn't. And my thing is like, for me, it's so hard to maintain that same thing. Yes. It's, it's easier on the tour because you have 125 guys keep their job. 
you know, the, the, the Latin tour was 60, the corn Ferry is 70 or 75. And then even to move up, you have to be top 10, top 25. Well, on tour, yeah, it's easier to maintain that because you have more flexibility. Like it's easier to finish in the top 125 than it is to finish on the 25, right? But to play where everyone that's on the PGA Tour wants to play, which is all the majors, all the WGCs, the Tour Championship, you know, trying to win the FedEx Cup, all that. Like you have to finish in the top 25 every year on the PGA Tour. That is that's hard. I mean, I'm sorry. That's hard. Like that. Yeah. Like that is a lot hard. I'm not saying it's harder than getting to the tour, but I'm saying it's that whole separate. Like there's that next line, that next you know real thin line between finishing you know 50th and 25th. And trust me, your sponsors know when you don't. Your performance based <laughs> stuff knows when you don't. Your FedEx company, everything knows. Like yeah, we play for a lot of money, but there's like the difference in the guys that are finishing top 10 in the world and the guys that are finishing in top 100 in the world. I mean, it's it's tenfold. Mm-hmm. Do you ever think back to like Latino America days and you know you've been well you've been on the tour PGA tour since the fall of 2017, correct? Yes. So do you ever like think, you know, I'm sure when you're in Latino America, you're you would look up at like one week on the PGA tour would be like the greatest week of your life. And now that's your week every week now. Like that's your Oh yeah. that's your new reality. How do you, what is that like transition like to everyday being? What, what a lot of golfers and many golfers in the world dream of is now your reality. How do you cope with that day to day? Well, I mean, going back to the first conversation we had, I remember hopping on my first private plane with Jordan Spieth flying between um, the playoff events. And I felt the same way. Like, holy cow, this is, you know, this is it. Well, now, you know, whatever. Like when you play on tour and you, your first event, I Monday qualified in the Valspar while I was on the web and finished 11th. That was that was my holy cow moment. How much money did you get for that? More than I'd made in my entire career in one day. <laughs> or four days, whatever. But what well, all it takes is one week. Yeah. See? <laughs> one week. Yeah. yeah, right. But <laughs> it's like if I could go back to the feeling that I had at that Valus Bar and had that every single week, I mean, it just it's insane. It is so amazing. Like But you can't channel that every week. It's now impossible it's, yeah. because like what becomes a habit or what becomes, you know, what is a luxury eventually becomes a habit if you do it constantly. It's like, I mean, you ask Charles Howell, who's or, or Stuart Sink, like I'm winning, winning doesn't change. I, I've only won once, so I don't know, but I'm, a, I'm psyching myself into that, <laughs> that winning doesn't change. It's always going to feel that good. <laughs> Tiger, if Tiger feels that way after his first win for 80 of them, then yeah, baby, yeah. let's rock and roll. But I, I can't, I don't know. But in terms of, actual tour events it's it stinks to say that it doesn't feel like it did it's starting to feel it can't though it's starting to feel like work and i don't mean that in a bad way but like i now know like hey man i gotta go work on my wedge game if i'm gonna stay out here where before i was going to work on my wedge game so i could get out there it's different i would assume hugely different (laughs) staying and getting huge different stuff it's 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 way different and i'm not saying one's better or worse it's it's just it's finding that internal motivation at all times and no matter what like i have a bad week in on the tour and it stinks right i'm like oh you're still in the pg tour man like your life's awesome well you're right but it's still my freaking job like it sucks when you don't perform there's stress no matter if it's a dream job and that's your job could be my job, anything like that. There's stresses that come with it that don't 
you know, I think a lot of people off the street will look at, you know, a PGA Tour life and say, you guys got it. I mean, you guys got a lot of things. It's, it's we true. We have it made, yes. yes. I'm not saying we don't, but, but that it doesn't mean you don't have stresses. Stress yeah, yes. yes, exactly. So what, what, when it comes to like, and I, I mean this question in, in, in the most literal sense of when you have, you don't have every possible playing opportunity for you, but you have basically the playing opportunities that you, that you would want. You have a scheduling choice for a lot of the starts that you make. What is, how do you make out a schedule? How do you, you know, I'm trying to find the difference between the balance of finding rest week versus knowing like, hey, I have the opportunity to play for $7 million this week. And I feel like the hurdle for taking a week off has to be huge. You know, when you're when you're fighting for status on tour, when you're fighting to make it out on tour, I'm sure courses go into that, you know, scheduling what fits your game, blah, blah, blah. But the what what is a motivating factor for teeing it up in a tournament that may seem obvious but i kind of want to know how guys make those decisions i mean i think it is two parts one is do you like the golf course do you you know what tournaments are around it and then really where you need like what you what's your immediate goal and that one should be third like the only reason I say that is like during after the shutdown and then we started playing again, like I was in like 70th or something on a FedEx cup. And I usually had all my honey holes coming up like Wells Fargo and you know, all these tournaments that I'd played well in prior that were completely canceled. And so then I was like, Hey, I only have like eight tournaments. I think until the playoffs, I have to play. I had to take one week off. No way you're going to perform in nine weeks. I mean, I think that's easy to say, but you had to feel, you felt like you had to play all of them. And that stinks because you, your immediate goal is I want to get to, to a championship and I feel like I got to play as much as I can to, to get the most opportunity. On a normal year, you you look at, you know, some people say I never play well on my third week. Some people say I never would play well on my fourth week. Anything past your fourth week. If you're playing well in your fifth week, it's kind of a, you know, fluke, I guess. Some people say I need one week off. Some people say I need two. And the only way you figure that out is experience. Yeah. And But the good thing is, when you're a rookie, you have to play every tournament you get in because you don't get in everything. Once you eclipse that, you've played enough and you've figured enough out of yourself that you can kind of start making those choices. So, you know, the point is, as a rookie, you play in everything you get in. And then as a second year, you've learned some of the courses you've you've liked and you, you figured out, hey, I, I played good on my third week every week last year. I'm going to play three in a row. I'm going to do this. I'm going to take two weeks off. And then... I would say 10% of it is golf course, maybe 15%, because my best week at a place like Hilton Head is not as good as Brian Gay or C.T. Pan's week at Hilton Head. Why? Because they hit it straighter than me, and they putt better than me, right? Well, they don't have to hit their driver. Like, when you put me against them at Wells Fargo, I'm, you know – and you put our best weeks there, I'm going to probably do a little bit better. But the, at the end of the day, you can play well anywhere, and you can also play bad anywhere. Like, I've missed a cut at Torrey Pines, like, the last two years, and Torrey Pines is, like, my heaven of a golf course. Because bad play, you're playing against best players in the world. It doesn't matter what course you're playing. Right. But my point is, good play, you have, a be, like, a, probably a 10% better chance of finishing higher on a golf course that suits your game. And I'm not saying it's everything. It's maybe 10%. Because, you know, it can go both ways. But when you do, all the cards fall in your way, it gives you a inch of advantage, and we're trying to find every possible one we can out there. 
so let's do it. Let's try like a little exercise. Let's say totally impromptu. Let's just pick a place like, let's just say the Bahamas. Okay. PGA tour announces this week. Hey, next week we're going to have a, a tour event in Bahamas for $3 million purse. Would you go play? Yeah. I'd love to go to the Bahamas. Okay. I mean, I got nothing okay, else. Let's to do. do. All right. Let's try $1 million purse. Would you go play? It's it's easier to say now because it's in the off season. We don't have anything going on. This is like our break. It's like, well, you know, maybe. But like, if I knew that this tournament was here in the middle of the off season, right. there's only no chance. Right. Like no, because and it's not because of the money. It's, it has nothing to do with the money. It has everything to do with performing your best. Yes, it's hard to turn down the money, but eventually you become numb to it because chasing the money. You'll never make it. You're only trying to perform your best. And in order to perform your best, you oftentimes have to take weeks off, which you're passing up opportunities. That is the answer I was looking for right there. Of like, because I, I always, I'm amazed at the dudes that have made 40 to $50 million out on tour that, you know, will, when there's a, a weird tournament that's putting up a ton of money to go play and they'll still go play it, right? Once you have already made a ton of money, then I, I don't know. It, 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 I guess I'm surprised how often money is a motivating factor. So it's refreshing to hear you say that that that's like a byproduct of the golf more than it is like what you're playing for. Yeah, I mean it's it's you're rewarded for it, and it's definitely there. Like I mean, of course, who doesn't want to have all the stuff? Like that's that's the United States in a whole. Like right, right. But I, I was curious if that answer would change if it was a three million dollar no. person, or if it was seven million. You're like, oh yeah, I'm gonna go to you're up gonna for make seven. you're gonna make the most money simply by performing your best and so whatever you do to perform your best that is what will determine how much money you make and sometimes if that money thing starts trying to tilt your scales a little bit you have to remember that the performance is way more important and the more you perform the more money you make so when you win the honda in 2019 if i were if you if i was to ask you to rank how these things shake out the biggest priorities that come with winning a tournament you have a master's exemption you have two years of job security. You have one point whatever million dollars that is. And you get like new category of tee times is basically kind of what I, I'm guessing that's not leading the cat. But I, that's, those are some of the things that come with a win, correct? To, uh, to your job, uh, to your job, no doubt. Well, so if you were like, let's, so let's just say of those four things, like you have to power rank them. Yeah, in, one. That's one. Which the, this is to, the, your to your job. Okay. Now, this is, remember, I'm, I've only been on tour for like, of course, 16 months, yeah. right? Like, I, like I'm fighting for my job every week that week, right? That's number one. Now, win number four or five or seven for guys that are top fifty in the world, I'm, it's completely different. But for me, in that moment, Keith Mitchell, one job security, two would definitely be the money, three would be the masters, and four would be the um, tee times. And the reason, the only reason I said three, the masters over the money, is in that moment when I won, you feel like you're going to play in the masters every year the rest of your life. Like if I never play another Masters again, which I hope to God is not the case, <laughs> I will change that answer okay. with you on the show, and you'll hear it. Okay? <laughs> but like that's that was in that moment in time, right? And so that that's kind of where I stand is like you know as a professional golfer, you your dream is always playing the Masters, right? Well, once you play it once, okay, now I want to win, right? Yeah. So. Okay, so I'll, I've never asked this question, and I kind of came up with it, and I actually I love the question. It's completely hypothetical, of course, and not realistic. 
but how much would you pay in cash <laughs> oh, for a master's? This is all about money. Have you noticed this whole conversation is about money? No, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to. I'm trying to get to like how to rank all this stuff, how it all works for a professional. But how much would you pay for a master's exemption if you could buy your way in? What would that be worth to you? Like me right now? Yeah, like you can play in the 2021 Masters. I mean, if I said it was it would cost you 200 grand, would you would you do it? No, I would do it on the on the Monday of if I hadn't gotten right. exempt already. Okay, let's go. We're Monday. We're Monday of Masters week. You're not in. I'm not in. Somebody tries to sell you a no, spot. No, not 200. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> I I don't know. I I honestly I don't think I could. Now that I'm thinking about, it, I don't think I could do it. Like I just it just feels dirty. Well, yeah, it's dirty. <laughs> it's not a hypothetical question. Like, hypothetical question. I'll I'll do it for. I'd do it for a hundred grand okay. easily. That's a, that's a great. I mean, it's hypothetical. If that actually was like, if you know, hey Augusta, like you're listening to this, like no, I would never <laughs> no, no, no. do that. Of course, that it's not a actual. <laughs> that's what they call a hypothetical. But like that's, oh. I think that's an interesting question of like, what is but that it's, worth? Yeah, and, and it's and that's such a personal, like of course, it, it's individual, not personal, individual question, right? Because. Tiger's in the Masters for the rest of his life. Well, I would pay zero dollars. You know, a guy that's never played the Masters, and you know, this is your chance. And if he has no money, he can't afford that. I don't know. Yeah, a dollar, a right. million. Who knows? It's it's very personal. It's a terrible question. That's a God. great question. I'm going to ask that to everyone. You going should forward. you should ask that to everyone just so you can get good responses because I know that this is what it's about. But as somebody you're asking to, oh, it's like it feels uncomfortable. Weird I'm sure. That's, <laughs> look, that's what. The, <laughs> You guys are drinking out, out of my master's service tumbler <laughs> here. I feel like I'm cheating on it. Um, well, right, so let's go to you winning. And we're not going to talk about the money that comes with you winning the Honda because I've been beating you up with money. Yeah. Uh, Jets and Sea Island. <laughs> this. Right, I might have been emphasizing that maybe a bit too much, but it's interesting. I think if somebody was to meet you or would, if they had opportunity to sit down and ask PJ Tour players questions, that would be along the line of what they'd want to ask. I don't disagree. Okay. I'm just giving you a hard time. I know. All right, so I want to go to the Honda. You've not won. Your, your, what was your most recent win, I guess, prior to that? I think it was a G-Pro win. G-Pro Tour. I mean, truly. I, I did. I never won on the Web Tour. I obviously didn't win on the PGA Tour before that. I lost in a playoff on the Latin American Tour. So it would have been a mini tour event up in, um, God, where was it? It was up in North Carolina somewhere, like forests or something. And it won like five grand. Are, are you, when you're, I guess, what is, is there a holy shit moment of like, oh my God, I could win a PGA Tour event? If so, when is that during that week? Is it Friday, Saturday, back nine, Sunday? No, it's not. It's, it's, it, it hit me on literally while I'm walking around the green reading my putt. And I did everything in my capability to block that feeling out. Because if you ever have that feeling that, oh my God, this is to win, there is no chance you could seize that moment in your first time. No chance. And that translates to anybody at any point having a putt on the 18th hole that's for something. It could be to break 90 for the first time. Yeah, like yeah. It translates at all levels. So You have to dumb it down to, this is, this is what I have to do to make this putt and not... Oh my God! This is to win one blunt, blah blah blah. Beat Ricky and Brooks. You and, brought the money up that time. I, I didn't know, say that's that. That's why I said blah blah blah. But anyway, it you know if if those thoughts had crossed my mind, I'm not saying I would have made it or missed it, but like you know, that just adds way more personal pressure, internal pressure that that might be harder to handle. I'm not saying you can or can't. It's just why. It's just make it as make it as simple as possible. 
make the most complicated thing in golf as simple as possible. It's so hard to do. Oh yeah. Especially when like you're trying to convince yourself to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Especially after negative stuff has happened. Yeah. <laughs> but you make the putt. How do you how did you do that? Um <laughs> I, Well, let's go back to fifteen, right? Okay. The okay. shot on fifteen is like what is a front pin, you land it between the pin and the water. Yeah, I mean, I've a lot at stake. I've talked about this a lot, and I would love for somebody that's a podcast expert to see if my answer has changed at all. But to me, I remember knowing like the yardage was perfect. The wind, the yardage was perfect. The wind was perfect. Everything, you know, was perfect. The only thing that wasn't was the pin was right next to the water, right? And so I remember looking at my caddy do we hit this right at it? He's like, yes, the wind's down off the right. Let's just go right at it. Because, you know, if you hit it right at it and it stays there, it's perfect. If the wind pushes it over, it's in the middle of the green. Well, I think subconsciously my right at it, like you go back and look at the footage, like I shuffle like a lot to the right while I'm over the ball. And then I hit it and I hit it perfect. And I look up and it's out over the water. And I'm like, what in the world? And it's just perfectly draws right. And if I knew as soon as I looked up, it was going to be perfect. And, you know, subconsciously, I literally just moved over to the right because I was trying to hit it close. And that's the difference is like when you're on, you're on. Like everything you're doing and thinking is is on. And I was like, I obviously didn't push it because if you push a nine iron, it doesn't, come it back. doesn't cover because the wind's off the right. And if you push it, it's going to fight the wind. And then it's going to just fall short in the water. It was like 162 or 163 hole. I hit my nine iron exactly like 161. It was perfect number, just a little bit of help. So it would have come up short. And I hit it, and it started drawing with the wind, and it was perfect. I, I'm a big believer in, especially at your level and especially when you're on, that your, your the right side of your brain is more activated there than the left side of your brain, and that you're – body is intuitively when you're visualizing that target where or the final result of where it wants to go your body is going to act on that so if you're lined up a little right your body inherently knows that and it is you're still swinging the ball with the goal of it ending at the target does that make any sense yeah i mean it it's it's like guys when they're like kobe when he may score like a 80 something points a game he's just he's getting the ball and shooting it every chance he gets because he knows it's going to go in yeah. like he's not thinking about his elbow placement on his jump shot from the three-point line if you'd open if you'd lined up left on that i believe you would have opened up the club face and pushed one right at the pin you know what i mean when you're that yeah. dialed in yeah like, I, i'm correct yeah I, that, I, if that's what you're trying to say a hundred percent like you're you're just trying to get out of your own way at that point. Mm -hmm. You're playing so good, you're just trying to get out of your own way. Is that is this might be a really dumb question, but is that the best golf you've ever played in a week? Wow, I've never thought about that. Because I asked Max that when he won Wells Fargo, and he's like, "Yeah, of course." But I was like, "You know what? Like my the best golf I've ever played is not necessarily tied to my best results. It ever. was the most consistent golf I've ever played. Okay. It was not the best. Okay. And the reason is like I've played better rounds." Way better rounds, made more putts, hit it better. But for four days in a row on that hard of a golf course, it was the most consistent golf I've played. Like I never got ahead of myself. I never did. You know, I was just. I mean, nine under one. Like yeah. And that's that. That shows you how hard the golf course is. Like, I mean, the best golf I played ever was the weekend at 
Arnold Palmer this past year, I think I shot like one over or one under or something. And it, and it was the hardest, you know, stroke average like 78, right? Like, I, yeah, I played bad on Friday. But for four-round stretch to win a PGA Tour event, there's no way you can't say that was your right. cumulatively best golf. Unless you're Phil Mickelson at the British Open and finished second to Henrik Stenson in that battle. But there you go. That, there's no way that wasn't his best golf in the Evie's ever played. It was something like the, uh, the fifth best – major performance of the last like blah 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 years yeah. and the only one in the top like whatever yeah. to have not won so that's that's the exception of win- not winning and playing your best golf is right yeah. there other than that i'm with max well we had quite an interesting i would say an interesting conversation when we played the program a few weeks ago about about distance in golf rollbacks uh i think you know we, we get challenged a lot like hey you guys need to have somebody on that like maybe takes the other side of the argument you're very anti-rollback, it seems to be. And I will admit, you made some of the best points I've heard made about the concept. So, I guess, where are you? You seem familiar with kind of some of the things we say about the golf ball, whatnot. Where is your difference lie? And uh, as best as we can, try to reheat that. I think we kind of came to a point at the end yeah, where we, we understood each other. Yeah, and we didn't really... It wasn't like agreeing to disagree. Like, I hate right. that. Like, we just... like felt like we both learned more from the conversation yeah. and went on. Yeah. Like it wasn't like I'm mad at you, you're dumb. Oh you're my mad. God. Yeah. It was like it was probably one of the most enjoyable I wouldn't even call it heated, enjoyable, like tough conversations. Yeah, it was good challenge. It was challenging yeah. on both sides. But very challenging. So I I guess you um how do I where do we start that, I guess? You start it. Okay. I think you the ball goes too far. Yeah, there. Yeah, I'll roll yeah, that I'll roll that out yeah. right out there. Why doesn't the ball go too far? Well, to backtrack, I'll say you started it with like with you know if the ball doesn't go as far, the best players are still going to figure out a way. You know they're still going to be the best players. That's that's one of the first things you started with. Yeah, I like, agree with that. If you're top ten in the world, you're top ten at everything. Like every top ten player in the world hits it far, and all of them put it good, all of them hit it good, all of them have good short games. Yeah. Right? There's guys that hit it really far that are good and have won. And then there's guys that putt it really good and don't hit anywhere that have won. Brendan Todd's a perfect example. I'm the other example, right? You know, Cameron Champ. Like, just you can go on both sides, but the guys that are top 10 in the world are going to be top 10 in the world no matter what you do with the equipment. So people can stop that argument. Like, Jack Nichols would have been the number one in the world no matter what era he would have been. Tiger would have been the number one in the world no matter what era. Dustin Johnson, you cannot tell me Dustin Johnson would not be good no matter what the clubs are doing. I, I definitely would not say that. Okay. Yeah. So. The point is, my my point to you is, why should you roll the ball back? And this is where it got good, was when you used your example about when you wanted to get better and you started hitting it farther, and you're like, this is too easy. And it wasn't because the ball was going too far. It was because the equipment itself became so forgiving that the average player could hit it farther and better at – it takes it. You said it took some of the talent and skill out. Took a lot of creativity out. I Cre- would say. Yeah, creativity. That was the word you used. It, it, it made me realize the value in just learning a stock shot that you can probably play ninety percent of the time. Right. In in a way, like tournament golf became very much like, all right, I need to figure out a way that my nine iron draws two yards, and I can rely on that. And that's different than the distance debate, but yeah, I think that is kind of where I think it ended up at, and it was. When in doubt, for me, when I was you know feeling queasy about a tee shot, the safest club to reach for was driver. Yep. Because that driver head's pretty big. Yep. 
Do you think the same way sometimes? I do. Yeah. And I also, but like my, the best way to look at it is you look at Tiger swing in the 90s, you look at Phil swing in the 90s, right? They were slower, longer, smoother, trying to hit the center of the face, trying to get the ball to, you know, spin the right amount, trying to get the right trajectory. Like Davis Love, you know, was one of the first guys that could really shallow that ball, uh, a ball out and still hit it far, right? He could figure, he figured that out through technique and through skill and through hard work. He didn't figure it out because of track man. Yep. That's the difference. So you take Tiger and Phil. Well, they've been good at every level of their game, no matter what the equipment is, right? So you're never going to take the top players out, period. And that's not the goal, I Right, it's say. not. Yeah. So the goal, according to the USGA, is about, you know, oh, golf courses are going to – we're going to run out of space. We're going to run out of room. You know, they have to get so long. The guys are hitting it so long. Well, you're talking about like 1% of 1% that are hitting it too far for your club, right? Fine, Right. But the longer you make the golf courses, the more it plays into their hands. For sure. And that is, I'm, that's coming from the guy that, that his one of the main reasons, if not the main reasons he's on tour, is because of his driver. And that's me. You're just, the longer you make the golf courses, the more you're going to play in my hand. I'm fine with it. Go with it, baby. Yeah. You know, you roll that ball back and you move those tees back, that's only going to help me. Sure. Because the shorter guys are going to hit it shorter and we're still going to hit it long. It does not matter. So my thing is. You take Bryson, because everybody loves talking about Bryson. You take whoever and put him on Hilton Head and see how many times he hits his driver, ball conversations out of the question. It, it's different. It's not out of the question, I wouldn't say, but it's very different. But it, it's he less, played Hilton Head. It was interesting. I know, and he still played good. He almost yeah. won. Oh, he's, Dustin yeah. Johnson almost wins Hilton Head every time, and he hits like three drivers. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out where to start with that. I agree that, okay, the further you go back – you know, the better for the longer hitters. I agree that it's talking about 1% of 1%. That's why I'm pro bifurcation camp. I think at the top level, there's no reason the ball should go as far as it does. And I think if you return to a more reasonable tee than a 490 par four, let's say it's 440 now with a ball that doesn't go as far, I think you introduce a much more diverse set of skills needed to get it through 72 holes then so take current ball if you move just move the tee up so you're saying all right move the tees back gives me better advantage right you're going to be able to hit driver nine irons where guys are hitting drivers of course great advantage for you if you just move the tee up now the game is driver wedge for you basically every hole right I don't find that very interesting. I don't either. Yeah. And my point is golf courses need to bring their rough in, rough up, oh. bring in, greens faster, more undulated. No. Do all that stuff. So you don't that's not the only answer, right? That's not the only answer. I have no problem when you say the whatever, different balls. My point is with all the technology we have, you there is shafts, there is club heads. You take the loft off. You di- change this a different. This is the best shaft. point you made. Finish. You know, this. you have a blot of ball. We can find a way to take the spin off. The biggest thing that I say about that is, you see all these guys in the the longest series in the world now, or a lot of them are hitting fades. The lot of them are hitting fades because technology can take the spin off. Where when you had the Davis Loves back in the day, he was the longest hitter because he had a low, like uh, when I mean low, the club face is coming in low, shallow. And he, he had a draw to take the spin off. He hit it farther because of his technique and how he hit the ball and his attack angles and everything like that. I hit it farther simply because I can swing it faster. That is it. Okay, my natural swing, if I can hold on to it and let my body turn and I don't have to do anything funky with my hands and get it shallow to take some spin off to get the optimum launch, 
which is all feel back then, by the way, right. which is even more impressive. I can put a stiffer shaft in there and hit a cut and have the perfect spin rate. Why? Because this machine told me. And this shaft guy knows everything about his shafts and everything like that. So you can take anybody's swing. This is where we really agreed on. You can take anybody's swing and optimize it with equipment, period. Like anybody on tour that has a funky swing, a funky move, this and that, hits down on it, hits up on it, hits this, hits that, and you can optimize it with technology. Where back in the day, the swing produced everything, the trajectory, the spin, and everything. And guys had to do that by feel. And by, you know, I mean, even before camera, imagine before video, right? Even when the video guys would look at that and stuff. Now, you can take a guy that's average to good, and then you take a guy that's pretty average on the PGA Tour, and then you can put him through all the club testing that we go through, and his game's going to get better. Sure. It's I've got no problem better. with that, with like the, the technology and I, that, that whole. But, that, but my point, that's why the ball's going farther is because of that. I think is a factor, but I think it all like we're, we're those are all like step. Let's just call that step six in the process. You yeah. you might disagree with whatever that number is. That's fine, but like step two is I'm going to put this great technology in my hand, right? And now I'm going to optimize this, right? But if you take that cog out, right? What's what's that? The, the equipment. Let's okay. just, let's just and I do not think that you should. Everyone should be using persimmon, but let's just say. I do. That, that would bring the skill back. That sure would. But I'd say it's a you would have a lot of guys on tour right now that would not be on tour. Well, hypothetical. So there's a reason why. No, it, it's it, it makes me laugh when people try to downplay the role the equipment has in it. In there's better athletes. There's TrackMan. There's better data. We have yeah. those three things, right? But you take the key variable out of that being equipment, which no one does voluntarily because the equipment's very good. You put persimmon in, that changes all the next parts of the process, right? The risk-reward analysis of swinging super hard might change the way you are doing. You might not be optimizing your swing to launch it high and far every time because you can't control your dispersion nearly as well. So now when you get to a certain point where you're not hitting it as accurate as you are when you're hitting it far, your strategy of how you play a golf course might change significantly. So it, it, I think that there's you can view it in, in, four, in one way, which is like, Let's just take those four components and say they're all contributing the ball going far. That's accurate. But if you the big one of if you take the you can't you're not taking TrackMan away. You're not taking the fact that we have more knowledge away. Okay. Correct. Perfect. Um, so what you could change is equipment, right? So when you say equipment, what are you saying? I think it's a combination of how the ball spins and the size of driver heads. Okay. Now this is the best part about this is the USGA set the driver head somebody fact checks this when did the usga set the driver head at 460 i do not know the answer to that i mean it was forever ago yeah and you know why oh nobody you know it looks bad it's this it's that the center grab well you know obviously you learn technology bigger bigger you know and it what five years ago i would say five years ago is when everything became 460 like, I remember my first year on tour, I played that TaylorMade M1 440 head, and it was like, whoa, dude, you're not playing 460. You're not, you're not giving yourself that advantage. And that's the point. Like, that goes back to making the game more challenging and not making you hit the ball necessarily shorter. I think it all is the same argument, except we so we're so stuck on distance is that if you make it – golf clubs more difficult to hit or more difficult to you know less forgiveness i would say you're gonna 
scale distance back because guys aren't going to swing as hard because the sweet spot's not as big, the ball's not going to go as straight, and it's going to take a lot more like hand-touch skill than it is brute strength. And, and so that's, that's going to let you get excited when someone does square one up and go for a long drive. Exactly, yeah. because right now you look at how Phil Mickelson is swinging his driver. He still misses a lot of fairways, so it's not perfect. It's not Bryson still hits it everywhere, right? But the level of dispersion is getting less and less and less and less and less and less. And we're going to eventually all be in 48-inch shafts. I promise you in four years, we're all going to be 48-inch shafts. Shaft companies are going to figure out a way to make 48-inch shafts be just as forgiving as 45. Or if they're not just forgiving, you're gaining more distance. The data is going to tell us that, you know, hitting it far. We're going to go in that way. And we're going to have the same conversation every year. Because if you talk to the guy in 1920, in old Tom Morris, whatever, and they're like, oh, that guy in 1950 hits it way too far. Well, we're having the same conversation because everybody in their generation wants it to stay the same in their generation, period, right? So it's always the next generation that pushes the envelope and makes it different. So I'm not saying we go back in time. I don't want us to go backwards. You can you can change it by making it more skill-based than it is simply brute strength. And that's not by making the ball go shorter. It's making it more difficult to keep it straight and keep it in the fairway and stuff like that. I agree. I would say for the most part, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. No, like that. That's. I I, I want to know what what about that you disagree? No, with. I I think I think what you said there, I agree with, and that just making it go shorter does not does not like address the issue. No, I think it's a common misconception about the whole issue. It's yeah. like it's not like twenty percent rollback. First of all, no one's arguing twenty percent. 10% would be enormous. 10% would be too much, I think, in my mind, of just a rollback. And that's a separate conversation of just making the ball go yeah, shorter. because the long guys are still going to hit long, and short guys are still going to hit short. It doesn't do any difference. I guess one of many points I have on this is, like, why, it just doesn't make sense to stretch the scale of golf any further than it already is. Like, it doesn't make sense to go further back. And... If you don't go further back, it's still going to be driver wedge, which I don't think is that interesting, right? So if we're shrinking the scale, one, by either making the ball go less distance or two, addressing it by making it harder to control, smaller driver heads, more risk in it going far to the point where I can get excited if Rory hits a drive over the corner and has wedge in it. Because it's way more impressive he now earned it. than he it earned it before, yeah. I am or not amazed by 330 drives in the fairway no, anymore. No, like, of course not. If you follow shot link and you, there's, they always pair three bombers together and like you, they all three cut the corner, like that becomes pretty dull pretty quickly. And it, I think one of the best arguments against any kind of equipment change or anything is like getting the toothpaste back in the tube is very difficult. And it's gone on for a long enough time that like, you know, it's, it's going to be hard to change. I think that's honestly a great argument. I'm not like rolling my eyes at that at all. I think it's like, yeah, that probably makes a lot of sense. Well, the best thing you said was, okay, fine. We're not going to we're not rolling it back. We're not keeping it where it is. We're going to keep progressing forward. We're going to progress forward until we literally run out of options, and I promise you with this world and this technology and the amount of money you can make on stuff, you're never going to stop that. So, in if you look at the we talked about it, right? It's like the percentage of increase every year for however many years. Well, it started going way up when TrackMan came out, right? There was a little blip there. And that guy started hitting it farther when you could use TrackMan. And then you know, it's I think it's leveled off in the past, you know, a little bit because now it's on the player and not the equipment. Well, it's it's 
it's kind of self-selecting, right? I'm not, not yeah, I don't yeah. mean this literally. That's a very general, yeah, yeah. very general thing. No, yes. no, it, it makes a lot of sense. But like now it's everyone has this information and yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of everyone on that same. I think, I think a totally different ball and driver head combo could make the Trackman stuff way more interesting. Yeah. Right. It wouldn't, you, you made a great point about give me 20 minutes on the range and I'll get the shaft. I'll get the launch angle. I'll get all that figured out in, in whatever equipment you put you put on. Yeah. I haven't really thought of it that way in terms of, uh, you know. Because of the information we have sure, now yeah. and the technology we have in all the clubs. And, you know, if you if you compare it to other sports, right, think about t- – we talked about tennis, right? Mm-hmm. Didn't you say they rolled the ball back in tennis? I, I don't – I'm not a tennis person, but there's something they've done, I believe, and the, you can correct me if I'm wrong, to control – the the ball the ball speed on serves or something like that because the game or they standardize changed. the yeah. ball or something think about like John Isner like John Isner is six ten and he has the best serve in you know ever well he's only on he's he's I mean I don't know if he's won a, a major but he's you know he was a top ten player in the world because of his serve right that's like guys that are top ten in the world because only of their drive it's the same comparison. If you look at tennis back in the old days when everybody's running around and going the volleys, wood rackets, whatever those strings were, like it was not fast. It was finesse. Even hockey, everybody's big, fast, strong, and smash against the wall. There's no finesse. There's not so much passing. It's just brute strength. And that is every sport's going that way. Basketball, if you're not really, really tall and can jump really high, you're out of the equation. There's so there's very few guys that are the ball skill guys anymore. Well, I, I, I think you're onto something with the tennis stuff. Or until you got to like I, I see your point on hockey, basketball, like baseball too, the amount yeah. of information that's yeah. out there. It's, home home runs. runs are nothing. But those things are not equipment related. Nearly to the point that golf the discussion is yeah, related I, in golf and tennis as well. In terms it, of like tennis is a little bit. Not as extreme. Yeah, not as yes. extreme. But like if if the let's just say the tennis ball goes thirty percent faster than it currently does, yep. Whatever you got to do to make that happen, yeah. The scale of which you're playing on a tennis court probably doesn't make sense anymore, does it? Correct. So that's where I'm at with golf. Yeah, I'm like, it, I see that. If you if where, you go to where do we stop the stuff? Right? Yeah. Where do we put where do we put the emphasis on the player and not the equipment? Yes. I'm in for that. Yeah. I'm in. I'm in for putting all the emphasis on the player and his talents and what and his expertise with that club and that ball more so. Mm-hmm. The easier equipment is, the more forgiving it is, the more that we're going to hit it farther is my point. I can swing as hard as I want now, and the chances of it going the fairway are a lot higher. Yeah. And so, again, like a different point on this is like, all right, I – Treat this like a choose-your-own-adventure book, okay? <laughs> you are a PGA Tour pro walking off a green in 1995 right onto the next tee box. And, you know, you have your equipment there. What would the reasoning be in this choose-your-own-adventure to be like, you know what, we should go 60 yards backwards and hit balls and clubs that go way further, right? It's going to end up, let's say it ends up in the same around the same area. The, the, you know, we had to move a road and we had, you know, so-and-so had to spend a million dollars to do this and go backwards. It's going to add time to the route just to cover the same distance, you know, but with, you know, from a different spot. Now do that on repeat in a lot of locations all around the world. What, what would your reason be for choosing that? That's where the toothpaste in the tube argument is, is the best, I think. Like, that's not the current situation, but that you wouldn't end up the way we currently are. And the people that treat it the status quo as just being like where things should be is where I have the biggest issue. Why not? Why shouldn't it go further? Let's let's buy, let's build more tees further back and let's right, send it further. right. And that's that's my point. Is like when they it was a double edged sword. When 
we the equipment became easier to hit and more forgiving and we'd launch farther and you had track man and people started hitting it really really far when people started moving tees back and moving roads is when it it put more emphasis on it it, it rewarded the skill more, but it also made golf a little bit less driver wedge, right? So if you keep the tees right, the same. But, but my point is, it. I understand where you're coming from, driver wedge. Your biggest argument is you don't want driver wedge. You want to see guys you know, hit other shots and hit this and blah, blah, blah. And that's fine. I get that. You can do that with golf course architecture. It's boring to watch guys hit three woods and irons off the tee as a fan. They want to see you hit drivers. You are not the typical golf fan. I know. We, I know okay, I know. everyone knows you're that. Right. You are the super, <laughs> like, one, you know, you're the you're the us of golf or is you of the golf fan, right? The average golf fan loves people bombing drivers over trees and over water and this and that. That's a great point. Okay? Very good point. So, what you, so, if you, so then if you use my argument of architecture – against your argument of driver wedge, well, then that's boring, right? So then you go, you're back to square one. Like, you can play Hilton Head and make the greens of 15 and got in the rough really, really high. So if guys have a wedge out of the rough, it's, you know, they would rather have an eight iron for the fairway. Yeah, well, Mark Brody and his strokes game, whatever. Well, you don't account for four-inch rough and fit greens roll on 15 and greens on the front edge. Depends on the front edge. Yeah, I think – where that gets messy is where you end up somewhere like Wingfoot. And I know Wingfoot was long, not short, but it's yeah. like it's really narrow. Yeah. Doesn't everyone's going to be in the rough. Well, it, people so it forget that Bryson's length. nine iron is the same length of his six iron. And the longer the shaft, the faster you can swing it. So he's swinging his nine iron way faster than everybody else is swinging their nine iron. So therefore, he can hit his nine iron way farther out of the rough. Yeah. Imagine having a four iron with a nine iron degree loft for most people. <laughs> You're going to hit it a lot, swing a lot faster, and it's going to come way better out of the roughs. I hadn't thought about the speed with yeah. the longer shaft. Yeah, it's a lot easier. Yeah. It's so much easier for him to hit it out of the rough like that. Like you, you, you put a four iron with a lob wedge, uh, a lob wedge length. It's not, it's not going to do anything. Yeah. You know, it's vice versa. I, I think that conditions it, are one for one. You look at Bay Hill, if and you, you look at two weeks ago, uh, uh, this past Bay Hill, and you look at the weekend, and the average score is seventy seven. Bay Hill's not long. Nope. It's not long. Conditions win hands down on score. And if you could reliably you can't. depend on I that agree. everywhere, we wouldn't need the conversation. Right. A driver would be... A, the money we would spend in conditioning for courses would be way more absurd uh, it's than It's unrealistic. Yeah, to just, I like, agree. It, you can't make, you know, I always say, like you can't make a golf course in Detroit in, in spring be run, play fast and firm or something yeah, like that. It's not that it. easy. But that's no. where it's like British Open... It's almost never a driving contest because it, you're trying to get the ball to stop off the tee, and that again, yeah. you're probably a great point of like you, I, you. I'm not the normal golf fan that you know, but I love watching tee shots in the British Open because I'm just like, is it creativity? Stop? Yes. Is it going to roll into the pot the bunker? Stinger? The, is the this, is the that? Yes. And that is yes. I, so. We're a lot of common ground, and uh, I, I, I find the discussion fascinating with somebody who is living it on on the tour um, yeah and, and to and to close this conversation up is moving the tees back isn't the answer because you're just playing more to it and then moving and you know it's expensive too right and then also rolling the ball back isn't the answer and then also making the clubs less forgiving isn't it you have to find common ground in all three of these things because like i said the best players in the world are going to be the best players in the world. And that's what we're trying to – if that's what we're trying to do as a game, well, then 
it's not broken, right? It's more for the, the your local golf club and figuring out what they want to do, which I don't think they should care because, you know, 95% of their members, it doesn't affect. Two, it's what's the most enjoyable product that we have on TV. That is hitting drivers for 95% of the people. I know that pains yeah. you to say. Yeah. I, why I, does why does the media all they talk about is Bryson Hing is driver? Yes, it's annoying, but it's because they'll get the most hits on it. Yeah. It it yeah. yeah. I just I <laughs> if the ratings were blowing it out, I could see it like yeah, everyone is loving the driver boom and it is I understand wow, what you're saying. It's it's amazing, but it's not like it's, they're not pulling not, in cash. Right. But, yeah. but but I don't think somebody's gonna be like, Man, these guys are hitting two seventy and like hitting nice little tight draws with a with this is going to really make it any different the other way. I, I don't, I don't, I don't, my argument is not that it ratings are going to soar through the roof no, when no, they no, roll no. it back. <laughs> and when Rory hits a cut seven iron to yeah. a back pin. Yeah. Oh, was, oh my God. That was sick. Did you see that? <laughs> oh, he just hit it two eighty five. Like, no. Well, my one thing against that though, is like, I don't think like driving it really far translates that great to TV. It's, you can't see what you can see a track, you know, the line on it. You can see the number on it, blah, blah, blah. Are you more in interested in watching Bryson try to hit it or Bubba try to hit it over the trees on 13 at Augusta? Yes. Okay. I'm not saying that's the perfect example, but it is a great example. It is. Because he could he could bounce around, he could go finding yeah. any of his aliens, chipping out through the creek. I would that's say, golf course architecture making the driver just like that. I would say that's more the exception to the rule. You the, hit a three wood out there, then you try to hit a four four iron on the green. Well, you try to hit it over the trees. It's options. It's cool. You can't do that with every golf course. I know. I know. But that is my example. But I went back and watched the '96 Masters, watching Faldo and Norman. You know, okay. blah blah blah. And watching dudes I was four. I play that third I was ten. I'm not that much older than you. Uh watching dudes, you know, play that hole. And Faldo takes like three minutes, which is a different subject, to pull his club on his approach into thirteen because he has to hit, you know, where he's hitting it from, it's a totally yeah. different shot, right? And it's a balance between that hole being really interesting. Like putting more emphasis on the tee shot doesn't make it that much more interesting in my mind. If Bryson has a wedge in from 150, which he did at one point, that kind of actually ruins the hole, I think, a little bit. Because the point is, if you drive it up the... If you bail outright, ball's above your feet, horrible live, you play it close to the hazard, you get a better angle, shorter distance to the hole, blah, blah, blah. That is more interesting. I agree, though, that it's not like that's going to change golf ratings and all that and stuff. And it's so. not going to change really golf at all, except at the highest level. And my point is, at the highest level, it doesn't matter what you do, those guys are still going to win. I agree. I, 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 for the most part, agree. I think some it will, it will allow guys. With no, I'm not saying the PGA Tour. I'm not saying. Yeah. I mean, seventy five percent of the PGA Tour might be different. Might have seen whatever. But the top ten in the world guys are going to be the top ten. In the world. Like if if they move the rim up in basketball or down, LeBron's still going to be the best player. My MJ would still be the best player. You can figure it out. I think someone like like Webb Simpson could be a more highly regarded player if the ball if if there was a different landscape with technology. Like you have a better chance at not being a tremendous driver of the ball and being a very, very good PGA Tour player. Better chance than the current landscape. Uh, yeah, I, I, I just – my thing is when you bring the ball back, like 
the guys that hit it longer are still going to hit it equally percentagely as far, but they're probably going to hit it more fairways. Would you say though, there, the one thing I didn't, you know, <laughs> like I went home that night and I was like, damn, God, Keith kind of owned me on a couple things. One thing I meant to say and didn't though was, I think there's a difference in what you're going to pull off the tee. If you know you can get it to within wedge distance, you don't fear being in the rough. Usually, depending on the rough, blah, blah, blah. No, but, no, no. De- yeah, depending on the conditions. Of course, depending on the conditions. But if you can get it within wedge distance, you're probably you know, going to pull driver versus laying back and having eight ironing out of the fairway. You'd rather have the chance of hitting it in the fairway with wedge. Correct. The backup option. Because you still have the chance of hitting it in the rough with the three wood. For sure. Or a five wood, whatever. But does that change if your driver is going to hit, like let's say a, a bad drive is going to put you in a spot where you have seven iron out of the rough. And that is something you cannot hold a particular green with. No, 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 because you bring it back, and then your other option is three wood or five wood to have a four iron out of the rough. Right, but it, if if I'm saying if you're restoring the balance and like, all right, this is going to help me hit the fairway, you know, whether it's you know wider in that area or I'm not around a dog leg or something like that, I know I can come in from the fairway here, and I will have six iron in whatever, and if I hit or let's say five iron, and if I hit a bad drive around the corner and I'm in the rough and I have seven iron in. That's different than saying I have wedge in because a seven iron out of the rough is going to be very difficult to hold, but I could in theory hold a five iron out of the fairway. Does that make sense? It makes it makes sense, and you're and you're perfectly correct. But my my thing is, if you look at the longest par fours, like it, you look at Oakmont when it was playing like wet and stuff, and guys were you know they couldn't get it to the fairway, they couldn't get it out of the rough no matter what, they were still hitting driver, right off every hole because. You're never going to give up that chance because my point is, guys on the PGA Tour, they hit their driver equally as straight as their three or five wood. I just I, maybe it's one percent, two percent. Like if it's it's not that big of a difference. The only reason you're hitting those other clubs is to set yourself up for a different shot, which has everything to do with golf course architecture, Hilton Head, Bay Hill, all these places. So to answer your question, I know what you're saying. But guys on the PGA Tour are still going to hit driver because if they do hit it in the fairway and when they're playing well, they will, they're going to have less club in. Yep. I think I'd be totally cool with that if the you know there was a very clear, um, a more clear punishment for being in the fairway and rough, right? Well, Which yeah, I you think take would- the fairways at 280 and then you start just going ne- necking them in. And then you put trees up, you build the rough up. That's how you fix the problem without changing the equipment. I've said that since day one, the architecture stuff. If you move the tees back, we're going to hit more drivers. You move the tees up and you make the fairways tighter. You cut – I mean, look at Pine Valley. There's fairways that stop at 280. Like, you – I don't have the option to hit driver, period. You look at at Hilton Head and there's plenty of holes that I literally – like, what's it, number um, 13? I have I'd have to see a map on that one, but you I mean, can't. There's no way I could hit driver within ten yards of the green, and I hit four and off that tee every time. Every time, there's not a player on tour that hits driver that green. Why? Because the reward, the risk for the reward is not great enough, and that's simply because of the architecture, not because of the equipment or anything. Like we can all hit it straight and far. I'm not saying we're going to get to the point where it's good, but you can. His, there's freaking railroad ties around it. It's a bunker. There's trees overhanging. Everything. It doesn't matter. You're not going to hit driver. I'm way down. If the argument's more of you know certain sides of holes, certain angles, blah blah blah, due to contours, are you know really forcing your hand to make decisions. I I, I can buy that more than just growing rough up, just because I think rough can have opposite effects. You know, again, it's it's 
none of these things on their own make sense, right? It's like the only thing that makes sense is making it different for us. Is all I agree. Yeah. Like if, if you, but do it through the like if there's if we play fifty events a year, you have fifty golf courses you're probably going to go to. You can cut the fairways in a little bit up there. You make them tighter, make them this, you know, narrow in whatever. Like I don't I, for the game of golf itself, it's not. I don't think it's hurting hurtful to bring it back, but I also don't think it's making it better. I I th- it depends on how you define better. Yeah, like, I think it, it'd better be, for for you the viewer yeah, to yeah. watch the PGA Tour on TV. You, the viewer, Me, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. But for the grand scheme of things, like, yeah, Fred Ridley's pissed because guys are hitting wedges in his par fives. Well, you know, like they could plant a freaking tree in the middle of the fairway somewhere for guys to do that, and then the problem's gone. It's gone. Yeah, I, I. I'm not saying it's right. Yeah. I'm not saying it's the fix. I'm just saying, like, we have this massive conversation about rolling the ball back. It's like rolling the ball back is the most uneducated way to say you don't like, not you, just the person doesn't like guys hitting it far on TV. Mm, no, I wouldn't. Of course, I, I'm assuming you don't mean that as literal as the no, sentence no, no. is. No, but it, like- <laughs> It, it would it would be a it's not that we don't like seeing guys hit it far it's just we would rather that be a more difficult task yes and more make special the, when make it the clubs less forgiving if don't, there's don't make it go shorter make them less forgiving. if there's eight home runs in an inning that is not as cool as one huge timely home run with the prop with a different equipment set and that yeah i agree make yeah. it in the, in the if you gave them aluminum bats and they were bombing them out of yeah. the park. That would stop yeah. being interesting. But you just, I'm saying, so don't make them go shorter. I'm saying make them less forgiving because it becomes more of a skill to hit it far than it just does brute strength. We agree to disagree. No, we're I'm not. Kidding, we're not <laughs> no, we agree to agree know, there. <laughs> All right. I've taken a lot of your time, but I have to ask about Crunchy Pete. Okay. We hadn't covered any of that. You got you to tell us about your caddy. When we played, I was, I was surprised how, I don't want to say how normal he was, but he was is just a tremendous delight of a guy. I feel like with somebody with a nickname Crunchy Pete, I thought he was going to be way more eccentric. I know you've got, I'm sure, some eccentric stories. Oh yeah, I mean, his ex, he, that's what makes him so great is you can stick him in any room and he's going to excel. Yes, he he can talk to anybody. He's kind. He's you know he's very like the probably one of the most common sense smart people I know. Just because of like his life, his like his lifestyle, like it's just it's very just everything's so simple that like I'm the person that's gonna overthink everything three times over, and he's just gonna be like, man, just hit it right here. Like, oh well, duh. Why didn't I think of that? Well, because I thought about everything else at first. So that's what makes Pete great. Is he's very personable. He's he can relate to anyone, and his he's experienced more in his life than most people will experience in ten lifetimes by the choice of freedom and it's just he just uh, he's coming on this fishing trip with us this weekend and it took me a month to get him to commit and he would have committed the day before or rejected the day before because tomorrow is that far away for him really? everything is whatever is going on right there he's the most present guy i've ever met you know we're always thinking about the future and what could happen what might happen this could happen we got to prepare for this there's nothing going on in his world other than what's happening right then and right there. And it is so cool. And that's why people like him so much is to be around somebody like that. Mm-hmm. 
That's interesting. I, I, as you're saying, he's the most present person. I'm like, dude, I am not present ever. No, we're, <laughs> me either. Yeah. I mean, I, like you, us having this conversation yeah. and these people, their poor heads are spinning and yeah. like, oh, these guys. I mean, just, just be normal, <laughs> you know? Pete's the most normal, present person we know. Well, we have a lot that we may have to bump for a future pod because I could probably, probably talk to you for an hour about Sweetens Cove. I know you're a huge car guy as well. Yeah. Um, we can. Those are easy, though. Sweetens Cove is my place. I got very, very fortunate to be from Chattanooga. So it is a hometown for me. I played it before it was anything. You were Sequatchie Valley or? Uh, no, no, I was Sweetens Cove, but it was like before 2013 cool. or 14. Mm-hmm. Before it was anything. It was, it was cool in Chattanooga and that was it. And then right after I won the Honda, I get a phone call from the man himself saying, I want you to be a part of this. And I, I mean, of course you can't say no to that guy. Right. I mean, come on. And so now I've just been very fortunate to meet so many cool people. Being part of that such a, an organic place is is really kind of a, a special and then you know you guys are hopping on the train too baby let's just keep it rolling i know it's a really cool things going on down there and uh yeah we've we've of course got the house up there and it's something that i think we envisioned using it for a lot more trips than we have <laughs> but like it's been booked up man it's a it's a very cool like ski in ski out thing and it's i i, I love being whatever that weird community is up there i love being a part of it well and, it's funny because being in golf and being part of a golf course you know you'd feel like i was like very involved in this and that i mean i am like the hundredth coolest person in this <laughs> club so like i just kind of keep my head down like yeah you know I've, i'm part of sweden's a little tiny portion here and there a little bit but i went to the founder's guest i guess they called it a couple weeks ago and i mean it was the coolest group of people that you would net like there was airplanes flying to augusta national for like the opening night from a nine hole golf course in South Pittsburgh. And you're like, what is, I'll never forget the guys on the tarmac. We were flying out and they're like, they're like, what's going on? Like, what's all this golf? You know, cause they have no idea who we are. Cause you know, there's Peyton Manning and Eli Manning, all these people hopping on this stuff. And they're just in awe. And they're like, it's because of a nine hole course in South Pittsburgh to get see all these people are here. Yes. And it's why it's because it's that cool. It really is. No, that is, that's very well said. So, all right, I'm going to get out of your house because I've been here for a long, a long time, but uh, love what you've done with the steakhouse vibe and here, <laughs> here in the, the bonus room here in the kitchen. And uh, thank you for the time and the conversation and best of luck in the next year. Can we see what happens? Perfect. Thanks, buddy. Cheers. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's... Better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect anything 